You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we are down with the sickness. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, the original Reply Guy. Benedict, who's a celebrity that's disappointed you lately? No, I have a best question. <laughs> Why? Um, because you don't get to turn this around. I on do. Me. Yeah, no, I never. No, do. that's so, not how this works. If you, could, I run the show. No, I am a golden sorry. god. I am a golden god. If you could, <laughs> it, l- setting aside the ethics of having animals as pets. Okay. Um. If you okay, could, no, this this comes off the back of your fucking text. Yeah, the other no, it day, does. doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't does. it? If you yes, could, and the answer is the have, same. No, the no, answer is the could, goddamn if same. If you could domesticate any animal. And have it as a pet. What would it be? Raccoon. It'd a be raccoon? A raccoon. You can't hundred percent right. be a okay. raccoon. All right. Mine's a red panda, which is not far off. It's just a it's more colorful raccoon. Basically the same thing. Yeah. God damn it. There you go. All right. Um. Okay. Let me see. It's celebrity that's disappointed me lately. Um. I don't know. I feel like everyone's either already disappointed. I don't think there's anyone that's <laughs> newly disappointing. You know. You just learned um, your lesson long ago yeah, not to get invested. I think so. Maybe Matthew McConaughey for yes, even entertaining yes. the idea of oh, running God. for governor of Texas. Anyone, any celebrity who thinks that their celebrity gives them the ability to run for office, right? And obviously Donald Trump is the, the paramount example the of this. The epitome of that, yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyone who thinks that they can run for office just because they're a celebrity. Uh, is probably right, just- to be honest. <laughs> Well, Especially I mean, in America. we saw how the California gubernatorial race went. That didn't work out so well. Well, he's not uh, really. Oh, well, okay. Sorry, sorry, you meant Caitlyn Jenner. I thought yeah, you were talking about Caitlyn. Larry Elder. Did you think Larry like, Elder? Yeah. Okay, yeah, either like, way, Larry man. Not really either way. Either, no, either Kay- way, it was a bunch of wannabes and has-beens who were running, and it didn't work out for any of them there. Yeah, she uh, is not. She she did not do so great, Caitlyn Jenner. I don't think, I don't, I don't remember what the results were, but. Oh, she got like less than a percent. Yeah, that's what I seem to remember yeah, from yeah. it. It was not exactly what I think she expected. But what, seriously, what did she expect? Running I think as to a do Republican, a lot better, yeah. A no, party I think that she's made to do their a lot bread better. and butter shitting on trans people. Yeah, like, not what great. are you thinking? Jesus Christ. Well, right, Anyways. To, no, no, I need your celebrity. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, me, uh, Benedict, Demi Lovato. I gotta say, pretty disappointed in Demi Lovato. They were, I mean, the music's great. I love the music. Who doesn't like Sorry Not Sorry? It's a jam. But um, they apparently are now spokesperson for. This weird Gaia TV conspiracy oh, bullshit Gaia TV platform. Is terrible. That's yes, Demi Lovato is now apparently a paid spokesperson for Gaia TV. 
which mm. puts out both QAnon content and like weird Red medical woo, yeah. yeah, all that kind of stuff. Not so great. Yeah, I'm still gonna listen to the albums because they're all bangers. But uh, a little disappointed, a little disappointed, Demi. You got to get it together. Anyways, Benedict, you probably know. But uh, some of the people out there listening on the other end of the line, they may not what exactly it is that we do here on this program. And I would say to them that this is the show where we go deep, 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 deep to plumb the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from a work of conservative nonfiction. And in between, taking a look at other examples of the right doing their best to make America hate again. Benedict, can you start us off? Do you have a hot take for us this week? Uh, yeah, it's apparently that I was wrong about Cake not being a famous band. Which Literally I because we had to go to Spotify play counts so yep. I could show you that Cake is, in fact, a famous and popular band. Yeah, we did that. So uh, Kevin was singing some Cake songs, and I didn't know any of them. And <laughs> and then he said he was singing an Alabama Shake song, and I was like, see, that's a famous song. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, oh, let's go to Spotify and see which one's more popular. And the most popular Cake oh, song God. has, has four million, more listens. Four million. <laughs> let me finish. Has four, I'm doing my penance. Shut up. Has four million more listens than the most popular Alabama Shake song. So yeah. apparently I was wrong. You almost immediately me... well, I bet they're famous in Sacramento, but not everywhere else. That's, that's I it. think that's probably true. I think all their listeners are from everyone the listening. Sacramento. Everyone area. listening to this show except you knows who Cake is already. Okay. Everyone. Anyone who didn't know who Cake is, can you please tell <laughs> Kevin on Twitter Stop that you didn't know that. who Cake is? Well, Some of our listeners actually do tweet at me when I you know, ask it's them great. <laughs> it's my personal my my personal <laughs> attack. Ah, <laughs> uh, good for you. Very good for you. What about you? Hot take. My hot take this week, I do not understand how anyone can be a conservative having ever played any of the SimCity line of video games. Mm. Uh, And this comes off the back of our reading in this book, I think. Uh, All this talk about individualism that William F. Buckley keeps getting into. Mm. Uh, It's really hard to take any of that seriously having played five minutes of SimCity where you understand how decisions made at a planning level can impact the way that your little imaginary city even um, accidentally. Even accidentally. Like, Often accidentally. Like, <laughs> like forgetting to turn down the disaster settings that mm-hmm. you have set up for your SimCity. Yeah, Forgetting stuff to like that. turn on the water. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Yes, yes. Stuff like, stuff like that. Um, yep, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Uh, they just don't have the capability to understand um, that, yes, decisions made at, uh, at a governmental level have impacts on people as a collective and as an individual. And they just aren't able to get over that hump and mm. understand how that works. But anyways, Benedict, why don't we move on? What's on your bookshelf this week? I guess I have to say fucking comfort Eagle. Cause you won't <laughs> shut up about cake. Yes. You have to listen to a cake album. Fine. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've only, been this is very much the week of like Ben lost a bet. Three weeks. Like this is, this is my, pretty much. My, yeah, pretty much. I've been trying to get you to listen to cake for like three weeks now. That's true. And uh, and you have refused steadfastly. A- actively and steadfastly refused, yes. But you've said it now, so I guess you have to give us an update I, by next week. I will week's listen show? to it tomorrow while okay. I'm working. You have to give us an update. It's it's an hour long or so. Hour and 20 minutes. You'll be fine. It's a good album. It's a wonderful mm. album. Probably their best. Okay. Let me add it to my list. Hold on. I'll do it right now. <laughs> Do this right on the show. Yep, doing so it live. Going into Spotify. This is this is accountability, you. people. 
<laughs> it is 36 minutes. So I think you've just been listening to it no, twice. Yeah, I promise you. Minutes I long. promise you it's 36 it's minutes a long. Album than that. Nope. It's a damn good album. It's a damn fine album, my friend. All right. Cool. What about you? What's your um, what's your? Sorry, I was literally looking at the song titles and I forgot to intro you to the next bit. What's your uh, what's on your bookshelf? Fact on my bookshelf this week, we have discussed that video games in the plastic packaging can be placed on bookshelves, mm. and so of course I have a video game recommendation this week. A bunch of great games came out over the last couple of weeks, uh, but I have to choose just one to recommend. And Benedict, I am recommending the biggest time sink. The biggest pointless video game you could probably play. Farming Simulator 21. No. Nope. All nope. you do. Refuse to accept this recommendation. All you do is drive around tractors. It might be 20. I think it's 22. Um, you drive oh, around wow. tractors. Oh, so they like do it for the year ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's just like they do with cars. <laughs> you drive around. You plant crops. You wait for them to grow. Like I have, seriously, I have in that game spent half an hour planting one field. Like just, just planting a field. You do nothing. The game will never end. There's no point where it's like, congratulations, you win. You just keep playing. And, you know, you get barely any money for selling your crops. <laughs> so realistic in that way in that mm -hmm. you're always on the edge of being broke. Yep. <laughs> it's magnificent. It is so much fun, and I don't know why I could play it forever. So, uh, yeah, you should all go check out Farming Simulator 22. Also, the new Guardians of the Galaxy game is, is fantastic as well. Uh, anyways, Benedict, why don't we move on? A little bit of housekeeping this week. Of course, remember to rate and review on the iTunes. It's one of the ways you can be part of our spooky new world order. You can follow us on the social medias. Uh, I have a couple of updates this week, Benedict, related to things we've talked about in the past. First, do you remember the name Brent Bozell? Vaguely. Brent Bozell came up during our introduction to this book and Willie F. Buckley himself uh, because uh, Brent Bozell, I think the second, I don't remember which one. They're one of these families where they're all dicks who put new is numbers the after the name of the junior? firstborn. Yeah, I don't know. Is, the, is it the second or is it junior? I don't remember how that works. Who cares? Uh, but one of the Brent I feel like Bozells, the second is just a junior. And yeah, then once you well, get to the third... Because Junior Junior sounds weird. Sure, sure. One of the Brent Bozells, and also, I don't remember off the top of my head if, if this is the one who went to be a fascist in Spain, um, but was an early editor of National Review and is, uh, I think he was brother-in-law to William F. Buckley. Well, Benedict, L. Brent Bozell IV, with a name like that, he has to be a dick, was charged for his part in the January 6th insurrection. Cool. <laughs> So, relative of Willie Buckley, um, charged for rioting, trying to have a coup, you know? Trying like any good trying fascist. Trying to coup the would. government, yep. Like any good fascist would. Um, another update, Benedict. Uh, last week, or maybe two weeks ago, I said that National Alliance was one of the groups that was at Unite the Right in Charlottesville. Uh, and that was wrong. Uh, it was actually the NSM which stands for National Socialist Movement, which is even less believable to not know our neo-Nazis. Um, so I, I, in my mistake of which group I was thinking of, uh, gave one that was, was more believable that someone could think was the good guy on that side. Uh, the NSM, led by Jeff Shoup, who, uh, you know, their symbol is a swastika. They're pretty clearly neo-Nazis. Anyways, better, final update for this week. Peter Brimelow. 
who is another guy who came up during our introduction episode when you got mad at me for going after white supremacist after white supremacist who had worked at National Review. Uh, Peter Brimelow was a formal, former National Review editor. Uh, he is currently the white nationalist editor, editor of the white nationalist website, VDARE. Uh, mm. And of course... Uh, the update has to do with the fact that he sued the New York Times in 2020 for calling him a white nationalist. Uh, he lost that case oh. in December of 2020. And last month, I had this on my list. I just forgot it until now to, to bring it up. Last month in October 2021, he lost his appeal of that case. And as such, is basically as close as we get to someone who has legally been a judge to be a white supremacist. So Peter Brimelow, despite all his protestations that he is not is in fact a white supremacist, and he can go mm. fuck himself. It's a benedict. That's it for all of our housekeeping this week. Um, Spooky New World Order. Mm. You can, uh, well, you should all know, you can always become a member of the Spooky New World Order by leaving us a review on iTunes, sending me a picture of it, uh, tweeting about the show, posting on Facebook about the show, posting about us anywhere on the internet, send me a screenshot. Uh, I don't have one this week, but I did want to honorarily add Taru to canon into our Spooky New World Order, because Taru has been Sorry, with us. into what? New World Spooky World Order. There you go. You know what. Taro Takan has been with us uh, for such a long time. Uh, back when we did a show with an entirely different name and an entirely different theme, years and years ago, back when we first started broadcasting, not broadcasting, podcasting, whatever it is we do, um, and I just thought it was about time that Taro Takanen, um gets a little bit of a special uh, special recognition. Okay. So Taro Takanen, you are now part of our... New World Spooky World Order. And we thank you so very much. Benedict, all that out of the way. We continue our book review of God and Man at Yale, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William Frank Buckley Jr., the trucker hat you thought you threw away 10 years ago. Benedict, what did we read this week? Okay, so this week we read the second half of chapter two, Religion at Yale, in which Buckley literally once again just lists people that he doesn't like, I guess, yeah. with no reason. Has that really not been this whole it. book, though? Yeah, I guess. But, I mean, if he's not going to change his shtick, why should I? <laughs> okay. So this is the, like as you said, the second half of chapter two. Uh, and we left off last time at the beginning of a new subsection. Subse I always do that. Yeah, uh, uh, well, well pushy. A new subject, <laughs> which is entitled, I, it's, I, it's like Sean I get Connery that thing, itis. Like, uh, yeah, I was gonna say uh, Bill Murray and Caddyshack. Yeah. Uh, we left off last time at subsection that begins thrift and welfareism in big block letters above the top of it. Thrift and welfareism. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound lovely? And he begins this section saying, "Quote." It is a basic plank of the Keynesians that ours is a low-consumption economy that cannot sustain itself at a level of full employment without recourse to the state. Mm -hmm. A major concern of government, then, must be policies aimed at increasing consumption. It follows that saving, except in periods of inflation, is evil and ought to be discouraged by government action. So we start off with an obvious distortion of what Keynesian economics actually is mm -hmm. about. So um, there is the fact that Keynesian economics as opposed to what he would term classical economics mm -hmm. is more concerned with the consumption side of the equation of the you know uh, supply and demand curve right mm -hmm. the demand is that consumption and the keynesians are more concerned with the consumption side rather than the classical economists and others who are concerned with the supply side uh, which is where you get that term supply side economics yeah. that we hear about a lot yeah and it's also i mean it's around counter cyclical investment and stuff in that basically keynesian economics believes that 
it, it costs the government almost nothing to borrow, so they should spend mm-hmm. heavily in times of, of economic anxiety and economic crunch to stimulate the economy back into action. Right. And that's the thing. There aren't very many Keynesians who would say that the government needs to spend, spend, spend 24-7. Uh, most of them would point out, I mean, like we get into more progressive types who I don't think would necessarily call themselves Keynesian. Uh, but there are people who do say that government should spend yeah, at I, a certain requisite I, level. I would say may, maybe neo-Keynesian or um, yeah. even, you know, modern monetary theory is built around that as well. Yeah. Which is yeah. what we, 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 we went over MMT a bit. When we the, went over that the, when we talked Glenn about Beck Glenn Beck. Book, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Buckley would lose his goddamn Can you mind. Imagine? <laughs> would lose his fucking shit. So he continues, skipping down a little bit. Since the people are not to be encouraged to attend to their own future security, the government naturally must take over in this function. And from here on, we get a bunch of these big block quotes from portions of these textbooks. And that's going to be a lot of this chapter, right? Similar to what we had in the first half is these big block quotes of sections from these various books. And I'm not going to be able to go over everyone. No, because nor should it would we, just take, it's very boring. It would take us hours to get through this book. But he starts throwing out things that just just to give you an idea they don't really carry the thought that buckley wants them to think and the weird thing is we usually get this all the time but in the way we are used to getting it we'll get it from someone like glenn beck where he will just paraphrase but he won't actually put in the block quote Mm -hmm. that you can see he is you know being uh what's the word i'm looking for where he is exaggerating what that quote actually says he is so obviously doing that mm-hmm. in this book. He's just exaggerating what these people are actually saying in that way. Of, well, the government must take over taking care of people's future security because people are not to be encouraged. Yeah, it's very much from this we can extrapolate. Like, no. Yes. Yes, that's that's what he's doing for the most part throughout this chapter. And it's really weird to see someone who... And I have to imagine that Buckley's attitude going into this book, right? He was someone who spent the last four years in college. He learned about academic writing. He's used to reading things where people do lay out the the problems with their own ideas and mm-hmm. where people do address all these issues. And he's just, he thought he could do that with this book, but then realized, ah, shit, I'm just fucking wrong. Well, I already got half the page written. I'm just going to leave it in there anyways, <laughs> is sort of what it seems like. So... He goes down, skipping down a little bit, and says, quote, It would require many additional pages to transmit with any fullness the collectivist character it, of these Honestly, he's wasted so many words on big, poofy sentences like that. Well, but I want to point out, the reason I brought that up is because it's him doing what we have seen again in this book, him explaining why he's not doing the hard yep. work that he this book would lead you to think he's going to do. Yep. It's just more of that. We've seen it so many times. Well, you know, there's other textbooks, but I didn't have the time to go look at it. You know, it, it reads <laughs> it reads like a polemical, but with none of the bite mm-hmm. of a polemical. Yes, it really yeah, does. It, it, I mean, you know, it reads it reads like it wants to be like Prime Hitchens or Gore Vidal mm-hmm. biting. Everybody knows this is dumb, but here's why it's dumb. Mm-hmm. But it's but not he just that. Have that talent. No. Nor, nor well, does, nor, he nor has he talent. done the reading. Is the problem? Yes. Nor is he correct. Which yeah. is the other problem. That is another problem. It's the other big problem. So, skipping a page or so ahead, he continues. Quote: The reader's attention is always fixed upon the social good in scare quotes, as though this could be anything but the sum of individual goods. Which that's his parenthetical, but Bucks, you almost got it there, Buck. Yeah. 
The social good is a sum of individual goods. It's you're almost understanding it. You're you're so close, but no potato. Continue. Well, no, but it, it's more than the sum of the individual goods. Well, it's, true, it's true. The, that's that's the thing is that there's an added quantity with the social good that goes beyond just the individual good, right? Yeah. Because those social goods have returns upon themselves. And and if you um, build the social good higher, that has, it's one of the few things that does actually trickle down to the individual right. level as well. Right, like, for example, like the child tax credit mm-hmm. that everyone's talking about right now and Republicans are complaining about. The individual good is that each individual person gets X amount of money, and that leads to, you know, children having more food and not being able to, to or being able to pay more attention in school and, mm-hmm. you know, the exponential benefits that continue thereon and thereafter because of this initial individual benefit that is given to all these people. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. But, anyway, but then continues. but then there's a, a future benefit of that, of, like, having more educated children, et cetera, or whatever, right. of then they contribute more to... And I'm not saying that one has to contribute to society to be part of a social good, but, like, it will eventually have that effect, or it will have people not dropping out of the workforce because they have no other option because they can't afford childcare otherwise. Know, Benedict, it almost seems to me as though Republicans don't really believe that a rising tide lifts all ships yeah. sort of thing Bullshit. that they say so much. Almost seems like that's not actually a concern of theirs. Anyways, he continues. And even here, the private enterprise system breaks down because social costs don't tally with money costs. And I should just say he's citing to different places in all these books here. And like he has done throughout, he skips from one book to another and from one part of the book to a drastically different part of the book. Mm-hmm. And all that sort of stuff keeps going on throughout these next pages, and I'm not going to be able to point it out every time it happens, but that's basically what's going on here. But he points out the social costs don't tally with the money, and also you have to read this sarcastically because that's how he writes the majority of the portion yeah. of the chapter that we read for today. It's all written sarcastically, and it's it's painful. He continues, the individual cannot protect himself given the complexities of our economic system. Hence, the government, against whom tyrannies the individual is presumed always to be able to protect himself, is invariably called to the rescue. The point of inquiry for the economist, then, is not whether the government should control the economy, but to what extent. Hmm. Mm. And then he points out what made me laugh a little bit here. From one of the books, from Bowman and Bach, page 705, he points out, that the scope of government is to lie, quote, somewhere between 19th century liberalism and Karl Marx. Yep. Which is a massive gulf in between which there are a great You could drive a, cu- a cruise ship. <laughs> yes, that is a massive gulf, but... He wants that to sound like something incredibly scary because the authors chose to point out that Marx is on one end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But of course, for for Buckley himself, you know, that 19th century century liberalism, that's I mean, that's that's what you have to have. Anything to the left of that is already Marxism. So there is no you know, middle ground between those two for Buckley. It's just either your 19th century liberalism or your Marxism. It's a pure binary system for Buckley, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So what we have here, and I, you know, like I said, this is sort of just a nightmarish two pages of chopped up quotes with tons of ellipses from all these different books. It's, it's nightmarish to read, so I'm not going to read a whole bunch of it, but there are some points that I found to be you know, funny or interesting or whatever. For example, where he says here, quote, a remarkable and appalling aspect of all four of the books under consideration, remember he's been talking about these four textbooks we talked about last chapter, is their treatment of the opposition, which they do not so much as call loyal, 
Only Bowman and Bach make any reference to individualist notions on economics, but these are always framed in the 19th century, with the implications that they are purely of historical interest. Which, true, they are, basically. Yeah. S Skipping down a ways, Samuelson is more explicit in the following page as he states that, quote, where the complex economic conditions of life necessitate social coordination and planning, there can be sensible men of goodwill be expected to invoke the government. And so we are not only to contemn the superficiality of the treatment of economics of such men as Jukes, F.A. Hayek, Rupke, Anderson, Watt, and von Mises, we were also to doubt their motives. Okay, but at the same time, you're telling us that we should doubt the motives of all these authors. Yes! So... Yes! Because this is the point. And, and to some extent, I have to give him credit for, again, he has not lied to us throughout no, this book. That's true. He has not pretended to be neutral. He has not pretended that he wants academic freedom, that he wants actual discussion of ideals, discussion of any of these ac academic theories. He has not pretended in the slightest that he wants any of that. He wants his ideas to be enforced and for all these others who he would label marxism to be ridiculed to be made fun of and of course probably to be banned most likely is what he actually wants <laughs> it's just a laundry list of the people that he likes isn't it hayek Ropka, von mises it's it, i mean it really just like why isn't people why aren't people nice to my heroes to be fair at least there's one good rapper on that list <laughs> I gotta give him that. That's all right. If you missed last week's episode, oh my God, you have to go back and listen to it. Yep. You have to go back and listen to the greatest rap, the single greatest bar ever written. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never get over that. No, that's Anyways. what I call laissez unfair. <laughs> Got him. My favorite. <laughs> Anyways, moving forward. We get to a new section where he says, quote, Throughout, we are, and this is, again, talking about another one of the textbooks. This is the Tarshish textbook this time. Throughout, we are assured that the measures necessary to government-directed economic stability constitute no violation of freedom or democracy. And I would say to that, we're a republic, not a democracy. <laughs> <laughs> no credit is given, not even a footnote, to the serious works of serious students who insist that abridgment of freedom is an inescapable byproduct of government planning. And when Morgan assures us that his central policies are compatible with democracy, we must remember that he does not consider private property or private enterprise essential to democracy or even to freedom. And neither he nor his colleagues acknowledge that a democracy can itself be as tyrannical as a dictatorship, since it is the extent, not the source, of government power that impinges on freedom. Sure. And so there's some good stuff in that paragraph. Uh, first, I want to say... Uh, that last bit there, I actually think that is a very good phrasing mm -hmm. uh, of of an actual reality that many of Buckley's contemporaries ignore entirely. Uh, you get so many of these people that we read who they don't care if a state government or a local government were to enact tyrannical power because in their imagination that'll always be a Republican who's banning abortion or some shit, mm -hmm. right? But they do scream all the time about that evil federal government. They care more about the source, not the extent of the power. And same time as these people, and I again, I had the episode we had all those audio glitches on, I'm still very upset about, but we had that great discussion, I think, that a lot of it's missing, or some of it's missing because of all the audio issues, about this argument we always get of republic, not a democracy. Mm -hmm. 
right? And that is, again, that is an argument about the source of power, not the extent of power, that they try to conflate as an argument about the extent of power, and they are just wrong about. And, you know, we've talked plenty of times, going back to this argument, you can have, even if we were to do their boogeyman of pure democracy, right, you could just have those same constitutional protections that have, you know, require whatever, a two-thirds majority to overturn yeah. or whatever, to get rid of an amendment or change an amendment, blah, blah, blah. It's not, it's, that's the same thing. That's just extent of power, not source of power. But they are worried about the source of power because they're a small minority trying to cling on to majority power, which means they have to worry about that source of power issue. So just wanted to point that out. I did think it was, it was very interesting to, that he had something I, I very much agree with in that one sentence. And I actually thought that was a very good phrasing that he came up with. Yeah. I <laughs> Sure. I, I think I think you're right, but it's the it's the tyranny of the majority thing that he's he's pushing there rather than I think the I think he thinks that all government is by by its nature an overreach is what he seems to be apply, implying. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Oh I don't I don't think he would be consistent on this front, and I think we have seen him be a little inconsistent with this argument. I just think that phrasing is really good. I just think that he you yeah, know, accidentally came up it's with something line. that that works really well. No, yeah. it's a good line. <laughs> I think completely by accident. With that, Benedict, it's time for us to talk a little bit about Great Britain. Mm, I love it when Americans <laughs> talk about Great Britain. They always get Don't it right. you? Doesn't this seem like your favorite thing? So he has a quote here, and this uh, I think this is from the Morgan textbook, which is, quote, Ours is a mixed economy. The word capitalism has become increasingly useless. Since all modern economies have come to recognize, and that, that the word capitalism has become increasing, that's from the Morgan book, and then he goes back to his own voice. Since all modern economies have come to recognize that increasing elements of socialism serve the public welfare, all nations now have mixed economies, even Great Britain for, and now we're back to a quote from the Morgan book, when the British Labour government completes the socialization program underway, dot, 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 some 80% of national production will still be in private hands, only 20% in the hands of the government. In other words, in Great Britain, where the government owns outright coal, steel, transportation, and the utilities, where the government controls credit, travel, agriculture, construction, and employment, we still see a nation that is 80% free enterprise. Thus, the United States can go a long way before it ceases to be basically a capitalist country. And if you didn't pick up uh, the last half of that, was all Buckley being sarcastic in his angry voice. Benedict! 1950? Uh-huh. Did the British government own all of coal, steel, transportation, utilities, credit, travel, agriculture, construction, and employment? I mean, not all of it, but to be fair, they did own a lot of it. Um, <laughs> they did own a lot, but I think the one I have to take the biggest issue with there is the word employment. They did not control all employment. They probably had some employment laws on the books, which are much probably milder than what we even have today. That uh, even in, like, the most Republican states, but um, I, I take pretty big issue with him saying that they controlled all employment. Yeah. Yeah, that seems fair. No, I, it's, I mean, the, the UK Labour government was used to be properly, toothily socialist mm-hmm. um, in, in that they did own most of the utilities and, and non-competitive industries, um, yeah. which was, well, some people think it's a bad thing uh it's got worse since so um but that i mean I this is bas- well. basically right up until thatcher um, well i mean like this is this goes back to and i think it's something he will touch on a little bit in this chapter is his sort of 
quasi-acknowledgement or sort of glossing over the fact that he is very much in favor of monopolies. He's all down with monopolies. Buckley has no problem with them. Um, He just doesn't want to come out and outright say it. No, and he certainly doesn't want a government-owned monopoly. He wants a private enterprise monopoly. Absolutely not. Why would that? I mean, a a power company owned by the government providing a basic resource? The thing is, it's not. It's owned by the government, but it's not really. It's owned by the taxpayer. This is the thing. I I mean, mean, this is the distinction. Absolutely. But anyways, Bennett, we move on a little bit, and now we get to a fun area, because here. He, he, he wonders, he wonders out loud, what is the effect of these textbooks? How are they affecting Nothing. not just the people of Yale, but the students all across all the colleges and universities across the country and across the world? And to answer that question, Benedict, he quite handily gives us, back in Appendix G, Great. A, he, he acknowledges partial list of American colleges and universities, and actually not just American although he does say American on his description of it, uh, colleges and universities using these textbooks that he is so angry about. And Benedict, the first one, Samuelson, Economics and Introductory Analysis, my University of California, mm-hmm. Berkeley, using it, hells yeah. Your Oxford University, on the other hand, not on the list, but probably still using yeah, it. Yeah, probably. Because he, he did not get a full counting of all these. Uh, Cambridge University, on his list, using that mm, book. So you got some competition there. Cambridge University, competition. England. Yeah, yeah, he does put the brackets England there to let everyone know. I don't, I think there might be a Cambridge University in the U.S. or something that I'm has sure a similar is. name, like Cambridge something. Uh, but uh, I don't think that, that they, you know, I don't think anyone would confuse it with the Cambridge, as far as I know. The next one, Tarsius, the Elements of Economics. Benedict! Sacramento College in California was using it, not my UC Berkeley, according to him. Uh, but I am from Sacramento, so I feel like that's another point for me. Sure. I feel like that's another one. Yep. Next book, Bowman and Bach, Economic Analysis and Public Policy. My UC Berkeley, we're on the list. Hashtag go Bears. Mm-hmm. Also, we beat Stanford last week, so that's Yeah, I heard about that. Matters. Yes. The hatchet's well, coming home. Because I texted, it's an axe. It's an axe, you dick. <laughs> and the last one, Benedict. Morgan's Income and Employment, UC Berkeley is, of course, really? on the list. But literally, there's like two dozen universities there. Yeah, it's the shortest list he has. I don't know if he just petered out and got lazy on that one, or if just that wasn't but, a very popular textbook, I mean, and he sort of had to admit it with his short-ass list. I don't know how many universities there are, but even like the most popular ones, there's only like 50 universities on there. Yeah, it's not that... It's, you know, it's not much. And again, it just goes to how pathetic... His whining is here. It really is. But then Benedict, oh God, oh, we get to something juicy, where he starts off this paragraph saying, quote, the college graduate is a potential entrepreneur. (laughs) If he decides to start a business of his own, he must bear in mind the warnings of the economists at Yale. So in Buckley's mind, any Yale grad who's going to go out and start, I don't know, like, a pizza shop that eventually Glenn Beck will write about and complain about how they're being destroyed by big government or whatever the fuck Glenn was trying to argue with that shit. Um, Any one of those, the first thing they're going to think about is, I had that intro to economics class at Yale. Oh, 100%. They say, oh, God. That intro to economics, I'll never forget, they said to never start a business because all these reasons, and this is just, this is, this takes me back to, uh, you know, sort of like, like, 
not classic in the sense of, you know, like he would say classical economics, but for us, Benedict, for our purposes, this is classic right-wing writing. Scaremongering about absolute nonsense bullshit that nobody cares about through an out-of-context example that has never and will never happen. Mm-hmm. And this is classic conservative writing all the way down. And he does this for, I don't know, page and a half, two pages mm-hmm. almost, where he starts off, he's just writing about, well... You know, this is what this this prospective entrepreneur is going to be thinking about as they go through this, right? First, he's going to think that, you know, his business has to be justified in terms of the social good. And, of course, he's going to know because he learned in this Yale class that his social good is not just determined by whether somebody's going to buy his stuff or not. Right, because he has to he has to think that that there's other things that make up the social good, which, of course, there fucking is. Because selling cigarettes, although you may be selling something and people want to buy your products, does not contribute to the social good. I would have to argue pretty strongly that there's a definite social bad if all you're doing is selling cigarettes. So, But then he continues on with this stupid fucking story he's got written up here, and he says, but that's, that, you know, that's not enough. We have to worry about other things. We have to worry whether this, this uh, regardless of its financial success, is going to hurt the social welfare. And that we know that Private property and entrepreneurship, they're not rights, because Buckley is determined based on his exaggeration of things he's read out of these textbooks already. And again, I have to go back to this is classic conservative writing. Remember the snowball of bullshit that we got in the Greg Jarrett book? We got the snowball of bullshit going on in this book, too. It's all right here. He's just bringing it all in, and it's so great. I'm so happy about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's... It's just... It's really boring. It's... Remember, for the entire portion of this chapter that we've read up to this point, we are just talking about a freshman economics class. This is all yeah, a freshman economics one. class, just and he has one, written one freshman an apocalyptic tale of how this freshman economic class is going to destroy entrepreneurship, and nobody is ever going to create a company ever again in the future, ever. That's what he has written here. Freshman economics! <laughs> But again, I also want to point out at this point, this whole story he's written out, it's also very much on the micro level. It's talking about individuals and their decision-making process, which I, just because I'm a stickler for actually doing our job and, and pointing out where these books are wrong, uh, Keynesian theory that he's been complaining about this whole time is a macroeconomic theory. Uh, it's not a microeconomic theory. Um, it's concerned with large-scale developments. It's not concerned with this bullshit Shocking Italy. that Buckley got the detail wrong. Well, but Benedict is all about individualism versus collectivism, Mm -hmm. as everything we've ever read from any conservative always has to be about, because they're just binary in their thinking. That's all they're able to phrase things as. They're not able to get beyond that. Uh, They also don't have object permanence. Weird, weird. Hide, Hide behind them. Hide behind a curtain. They don't know you're there. Really strange how that works. He continues with this, though. Quote, there is the matter of profit. For reasons of justice and general social harmony, he cannot allow the consumers to set his profits in accordance with their desire for his product and their satisfaction with it. This decision is for a third party to make, with an eye to something called the social good. Those persons who are going to determine his profit are aware that absolute dollar income is not the only incentive to offer up the entrepreneur. High relative income will do. That is, just so he makes more money than his neighbors before taxes. Mm. It may become a question of whether he will be satisfied with the knowledge that the money he might earn would be enough to buy a Cadillac before taxes. In other words, will he this be satisfied? This is such a stupid thing. 
Honestly. <laughs> Will he be satisfied with the knowledge that he earned enough to buy a Cadillac, even though the government won't actually let him go out and buy a Cadillac? Will the knowledge make his Ford any the less a Ford? So... <laughs> I agree Honestly, with your analysis this, that that's just some straight up bullshit. This is NFTs to me. Oh God, it's all <laughs> NFTs. It's God, it's all NFTs. NFTs oh, all the way down. Well, oh no. this piece of paper says I own a Cadillac because I'm rich enough to own a Cadillac. Benedict, I'm so selling the fact NFTs that you can't of turtles, see- <laughs> so it is in fact NFTs of turtles all the way down. You can't see the Cadillac, but I know I have a Cadillac. <laughs> so. But this also goes back to sort of, I think it relates to, um, you remember the gold, uh, the, the bond conspiracy theory that we yeah. got in uh, none dare call it conspiracy. Well, you know, they have all these war bonds out there and what they're going to do is they're going to set the tax level so that when people actually go to cash in their bonds that they bought, they're going to be taxed the exact amount of money that they would make from the bond. So the government just gets that money right back from the bonds. Yep. That's like, it's this same bullshit. Like, and obviously again, we have, uh, what are we, uh, 70 years of history from this book to know that obviously this even though again the keynesians and the neo-keynesians won out the day this type of shit never happened kevin would you say that factually some people do in fact own cadillacs some people Mm. do in fact own cadillacs interesting uh, some people do in fact own fords those fords are no less fords for the fact that some (laughs) other people own cadillacs although benedict Bernie would give us all Fords as and Cadillacs. Dude, the, the Ford is the great American maybe a car. Prius. Bern, I feel like Bernie's a Prius. Bernie would be giving us all free Priuses. That's what it's all uh, maybe. about. Maybe if we were. Gonna... <laughs> well, I remember when Priuses were the big like the big hope of electric cars. What happened to Priuses? I, I remember. Well, back in that day when Prius I guess Tesla. That, I think Tesla it was like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when the Prius yeah. first came out. And, you know, I was still a right-wing shitbag back then. So all I remember was making fun of Prius. <laughs> stupid little car. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it is kind of a stupid engine. little car. You just don't even, you don't have to do the voice. I mean, I know you did the voice, but I, it I, is I kind of a dumb voice. little car. I did the voice. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I would drive a Prius right now. They've, they've, the thing is, the original Prius looked like a car for a fucking dork. It just <laughs> looked like a dork car. Kevin. And now. It, it was. They. <laughs> They've just made it look like a Camry now, which is fine. Like, yeah, okay. just make it look like a fucking Camry. We'd all be fine with it. You don't have to make it look stupid. But anyways, Bennett, yes, that's what this is. Um, it's just this stupid bullshit. This, and the story continues. Like, that's not the end of the story. He then gets yeah, into how- Yeah, we also, we, we, we later get onto the the rare quadruple ellipsis. <laughs> yes, we do. But he, he complains about, oh, the gov, because they want to take all your money in uh, death taxes. Death taxes! inheritance taxes uh that nobody's gonna make any money they're just gonna make exactly the right amount so that when they die they're down to zero dollars left in the bank because you know how you can plan when you're gonna die Mm -hmm. and um you so you know exactly how many dollars to have so that when you die there's none left because you want to spite the government and how everyone does that yeah Exactly like I thought, Benedict. That's what you know about, because that totally happens. Mm -hmm. And then he finishes this bullshit two pages of nonsense with, so he finally decides to go down to Washington and get a job with some government bureau, or maybe tie in with AT&T. His first question to the personnel officer of either place will be about pension provisions. And then in... 
the most sarcastic of italics after that. Yep. And Dean Devane was astounded, puzzled, and shocked in 1949 when he read that the graduating class seemed more interested in security than in enterprise. And that goes back to that opening quote for the chapter we read. That's... I, yeah, I remember that. But also, having thought about it, it's a little rich for the Dean of Yale to be <laughs> like... Why do you guys not want, or why do you guys all want cushy jobs and not? Anyway, Everyone just wants just a, a thought from job. the top of my head about the dean of Yale University. Everyone has always just wanted a cushy job. Yeah, That's and the dean of a university needs. is the cushiest job that exists. <laughs> yes, but Ben, remember we talked about all these people, all these right wingers view their bullshit cushy job. As the same Super as Lewis important. and Clark pioneering yep. across the country and raping Native women along the way. They view it all exactly the same. They see no difference between those two things. So, okay. Anyway, we get... we've, done, we've done six pages in 40 God minutes. This it. is not a tight episode. Hurry up. <laughs> we get to the next subsection, which is titled The Teachers of Elementary Economics. And Benedict, this one... I'm very happy to tell you we can probably speed through pretty quick Kay. because, again, it's just he just complaining. Na- names names yells just a bit. complaining about the teachers he doesn't like. And he even says in this chapter, quote, I am best equipped, of course, to relay my personal experiences with Economics 10, which I studied in the academic year 1947 to 48. During this period, our class had three teachers, all of whom were students at Yale Law School. And I love that because we learned last week that Von Mises also was just a lawyer who decided that he could do economics. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the The only bit I highlighted in this bit was that he's he the bit where he's like, "Listen, there have been too many teachers of economics, ten, as I have already conceded <laughs> to admit of facile generalizations yes! about them. But it is safe to say that at least at the basic level, the department is Keynesian. Okay. Well, but he also goes on when he talks about the department and he points out that. Four out of the nine full-time professors in the economics department, he would define as his classical liberal or his... Yeah, his, individualists. You know, individualists. So, basically half. Yeah. I guess technically five out of nine is a majority, but you're basically at 50% and you're whining this fucking hard about it. It drives me nuts. It's, it's absolutely... But, Bennett, my favorite part, my favorite part of this was when he said, quote, But I was totally unsuccessful in my search for papers. He was trying to get, like, exam papers that people had turned in. Mm -hmm. Several people whose help I enlisted in collecting the examination books ran into a stone wall no matter what avenue they followed. One was finally told that examination books were not to be released without the special permission of the department chairman, since, quote, too many people are trying to get a hold of them. (laughs) Okay. And he turns that into an insinuation that, of course, they had something to hide. Something devious. He says, quote, I cannot understand why the department should be reluctant to withhold these papers from anyone, but since it is not feasible for me to ask why, I shall keep to myself my guess as to its motives. Okay, no, name, by name, saying bitch, that, yeah. by saying that, you didn't keep it to yourself. Yeah, exactly. You're doing the same right-wing grift of insinuating that your inability to get the information that you want means that that, inabil- that information is... Negative for what you think the other side wants to keep hidden. Mm-hmm. It's that it's that same fucking bullshit grift we see all the fucking time. We get to the next section, Benedict. This is titled The Department. Of course also largely skippable, but let's carry on. Also largely skippable. But this is, again, about the economics department, who we've been talking about for the majority of this chapter, and only for a small portion are we not talking about them. But he points out that it's a lot of public... The only classes to focus on, for his purposes, are those that talk about public policy. Mm-hmm. 
And so that means he admits here that he's skipping most of the courses. Some of the most classical liberal economic <laughs> courses, yeah. That means he doesn't need to bother with all the, the you know, The business stuff. economic stuff. Yeah, the basis. So he says he'll omit, omit discussion of anything that deals with statistics, accounting, marketing, or international or regional finance. Also, isn't it shocking that the classes that are like economics for government are like, hey, the government should spend money. <laughs> isn't that weird? And it's not a- just like, hey, the government should ignore society's ills. Yeah, and the first class he talks about here, economics of the business firm, he just doesn't really have a problem with. Yeah, he's like, yeah, these people are, are pretty. Yeah, he's pretty like, yeah, they're they're all pretty fine. It's, it's no big deal. And then he talks about the professors who are, and again, he always just gives me last names to deal with here, which makes it so hard to look these people up when they are long dead, usually nobodies. But Mr. Hastings and Mr. Saxon and. Jesus Christ, it's impossible to find those fucking names. Yeah. Just give me, uh, oh, was his first name Anglo? Was it Anglo-Saxon who taught economics at Yale? He was a prestigious professor, apparently, they said. I think him I might have found a Wikipedia, like, one paragraph on, and an obituary. That's not usually what I find with these people, if there's anything about them at all. Usually I can find an obituary. If I'm lucky, they have a short Wikipedia page. If there's somebody who was important, I can find an obituary. Maybe I can find like a page on the historical department website for the university. And maybe there's like a long Wikipedia with some, uh, you know, links that I can take to outside articles and things like that. That'll give me more information. But these two, I I really couldn't find much on because these guys just don't matter. But then, Benedict, we get our next guy, Charles Lindblom. Charles Lindblom, who teaches, uh, he's... He says that he's, again, this is one of the guys, one of those popular professors that people really like. And these also always tend to be the people that he's complaining about the most. The most popular professors that everyone likes. And I think it also goes back to the fact that uh, Bucky is very upset that nobody likes him or his ideology. Mm -hmm. And so he always, he always just... It's nothing very apparent on its face, but the wording he uses and the way he complains make me feel like... I can see the hurt inside of him a little bit. I can I can feel that anger and that that rage inside. Yeah, this I mean down. this is a rage book. That's what it, it is. It very much is. But Lindblom, uh, very interesting. Charles Lindblom, actually, very important guy. Um, he did a lot of very good work in the political science field, more so than in economics. And today we would call it like political econ. You can get a major in political econ in undergrad. Uh, but he worked with a guy named Robert Dahl, whose name struck me because I remembered him from my political science degree in undergrad. He's the guy who wrote the book that I brought up a couple weeks ago called uh, How Democratic is the U.S. Constitution. Oh, Robert Dahl wrote that book. Um, and a lot of it ties back to a theory he developed with Charles Lindblom about polyarchy, which is about a theory that um, political decisions are made by competing interest groups. That's what polyarchy is all about. Um, And these guys, they were very um, um, positive about polyarchy early in their career. And then they both basically came to view polyarchy as very negative as they got older and I think as their uh, scholarship developed more thoroughly because they saw that it can turn into corporatism very easily when those interest groups that you're talking about are corporate interests with lots of money to spend on lobbying and things like that. So in their ideal world, these polyarchies uh, can be competing interest groups with theoretical, you know, near identical power that are pushing for this issue or that issue. But obviously in the real world, you have issues like different amounts of power for different interest groups, which often correlates with how much money each of those interest groups have. All that is to say Charles Lindblom is very interesting and uh, seems to be a very 
intelligent guy. At this point, he hadn't done much. This is 1950. Most of his big scholarship came after that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he just... We move on a little bit. I mean, it says that he uh, doesn't find the term capitalist or socialist very uh, useful, which I I very much agree with. I don't find those terms very useful at all because they could mean one thing to one person and a different thing to a different group of people. Yeah, as we've seen, it gets defined fucking weirdly every time. Yeah, yeah. this is also the point where we get his quote-unquote abbreviated lecture notes. Oh, yeah, which reads somewhat as follows, and then he quotes himself. Very weird. Yeah, and it's basically the Obama, you didn't build that speech. Yeah. It's very much, like, that's what I wrote in my notes about is, oh, it's, it's you didn't build that. It was uh, it was talking about, like, the Ford Motor Company, and he says, uh, the well, uh, Ford's wealth is only partly attributable to his own enterprise and ingenuity. These qualities would have availed him nothing had it not been for the community, whose services and labor he enlisted, whose materials he's used, and whose citizens gave him profits, blah, 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 it continues Correct. on. Yeah, that's... That's just that you didn't build that speech yeah. all over again. Well, I mean, the, the only other thing he touches on Limbaugh for is when he says that despite all this, he does recognize it's in- indispensable to a successful economy, a price system of one sort or another. So he does admit that he he follows that line of argument, at least. Yeah. And there's like some little bit in there about the socialist price system being less vulnerable to criticism than others. If consumers can compel their representatives through, you know, various rules in place to do this, that, or the other. Yeah. And that's just, you know, again, it goes back to, uh, and I, I think some warranted skepticism about, you know, uh, representatives doing the right thing and not necessarily the thing that does the best for the representative mm-hmm. uh, versus what what does the best for the people. I think that's some, some warranted criticism. Yeah, it's healthy skepticism. Absolutely. Uh, but again, it does not make Lindblom a socialist or a collectivist. As uh, as Buckley would have him be, although he probably fell a little bit further left on the spectrum than some other people did. But he moves on, and he's talking about uh, some of the books that were assigned during the year, which this list this list is outstanding. He says the reading material assigned during this year is also revealing. Edmund Wilson to the Finland Station discusses the historical inadequacies of the Marxian movement, but does not conceal his own sympathy with the socialist ideal. <laughs> Uh, uh, Schumpeter, capitalism, socialism, and democracy, believes that capitalism gives birth to political developments and public attitudes that must spell its own destruction. That's also what Marx thought. That's also what Marx thought, to be fair. Uh, Pritchett, TVA, extols the accomplishments of the mammoth government enterprise. That's the sin of that book in Buckley's eyes. Yeah, right. A book about the the Tennessee Valley Authority. Yeah. The next one, Childs, Sweden, the Middle Way, enthusiastically surveys the socialist experiments in Sweden. Um, Buckley, Sweden's not actually socialist. I don't know if anybody's told you that yep, or not. Correct. <laughs> Golden and Ruttenberg, dynamics of industrial democracy, are two union leaders who plead earnestly for closed shops, the Wagner Act, profit sharing, and egalitarianism. How evil is that? Very. One item from the reading prospectus is omitted from the foregoing list, he says. A 37-page pamphlet from the late Professor Henry C. Simmons of University of Chicago, entitled, entitled A Positive Program for Laissez-Faire, which is introduced by Mr. Lindblom as presenting the only intelligent conservative position. <laughs> and then he goes on to shit on, he's not actually conservative. He's actually a big government Marxist socialist. Bah, 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 bah. That's basically his response to that. And it's just... It's the same bullshit, man. It's just, these are the books that I was assigned when I took this class. I think he said he took this class. He's just going over, like, the books that he was assigned when he took this class and all the ways that he's angry about them. That's really all it is. It doesn't even, uh... And this is the portion where I I say in my notes in this, 
He doesn't quite say it, but he wants to praise monopolies. Because uh, he talks about Economics 36, Private Enterprise and Public Policy, which, you know, he says that the professors uh, talk about uh, monopolies and that some of the books attack monopolies and the bigness of business. And he doesn't really say it, but you can feel it. Mm. Buckley is pro-monopoly. That's what it feels like coming out of that. Yeah, I, it, so I, that totally tracks with his position on a lot of other things. So. He talks about Professor Bach, uh, who the only fun thing from that was that an opening statement that Bach says to his classes, which is a course about labor unions. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the quote is supposedly, you sons of rich capitalistic fathers aren't going to like this course. Which any professor who's going to open a class that way, I'm all in. I'm all Props. in. That, that's going to be a fun class. That's definitely yep. going to be a fun class. But then he gets to complaining about, well, why is this all this way? And he has all the blame for one man who probably isn't responsible for all this. Uh, Edgar S. Furness, the provost of mm. Yale University. Always point, the provost's fault. See, the dean never always. gets blamed. It's always the provost. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know what the difference is between no, a provost and a dean. Could not so tell you. It's a mystery. No one will ever know. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think anyone does know. Uh, but yeah, he complains about this guy, Edward S. Furness. Uh, and he, so he's also in the economics department. That's the other thing. He's the provost, but he's also, I think he's chair of the economics department. I don't remember entirely. Um, but he uh, was uh, the editor of the Lori Tarshish textbook that he's been complaining about for the majority of this chapter. And I believe the Tarshish textbook is the one that was only in like a dozen colleges or something like that. I think that's which one that was. No, that check. was Morgan. Nope, it okay. was not. Um, but so he's complaining about that, and he even says that despite the fact that apparently Furness himself wrote a textbook that Buckley very much approves of. Okay. Which is individualist in Buckley's own eyes. Which, okay. I mean, to some people that would mean, oh, uh, since he wrote that textbook almost a decade ago, and then he edited Tarshish's textbook and was very complimentary about it, um, maybe something happened between, I don't know, 1940 and 1950 that would mm. make him change his mind like the development of an entire field of economics which uh had a different way of looking at the world and has proven to be right in the long run something yep. like that who knows but this is the point also where we get to where he says that of the nine full professors of the department only four of them are individualists only four but he does particular praise for one professor named mr buck and Mr. Buck, apparently, he uh, signed on to teach the freshman economics class for one year. And uh, instead of using the department-prescribed textbooks, the one that Buckley has been complaining about for this whole book, he says, quote, Instead, he uses the text that for many years, and in a happier age, was used by the entire department. Economics. That's the title. Mm. A book which he co-authored with Professor Fairchild and Mirabile Dictu, Professor Furness, that socialist who's reason is that Yale is all a bunch of commies now. Ben, yeah. is there anything worse than a professor who assigns their own textbook? Uh, is there anything more no, dickish like that. than that? No. I, I would absolutely do that no. if I had the chance. Do you know... To be fair, I haven't had a textbook in probably since like... No. I think maybe since I had a couple school. in community college. Since high school. Yeah. In community college, like those entry-level courses, there were, you know, like Intro to Political Science. There might have been a textbook there. But like... In law school, you do have case books, and sometimes those case books are authored by professors. I never had a professor assign a case book that they had written, though, because I feel like even they didn't want to go that far. <laughs> um, there, I, I have to say, the one thing I've learned from reading this 
book and chapter is that John Maynard Keynes was six foot seven. What? I know. <laughs> Where did you learn that? It's, did it, I it's, miss that in the chapter? No, it, no it's just because I. It, it's, no, it's just because I googled him as a result of because I was just trying to get to his um his published works or whatever because mm-hmm. I was looking I was interested and I, in the Google pan up flashes up that he's six foot seven and then photos of him have him looking absolutely enormous so Jesus I believe Christ. it. <laughs> um so my i'm gonna develop a pet theory that we should just listen to tall people yeah. I think tall people should rule us they're generally right about most things i don't oh, know fuck if we just assign a worldwide dictator based on height yep. oh we're fucked man we're listen fucked. kareem abdul jabbar i would follow kareem abdul jabbar i don't think kareem's smart. the tallest man in the world though it's always like tall. it's always like some dude from eastern europe who has one of those diseases that gets you yeah, in a movie born and then too you near, die like too near chernobyl yeah yeah one of those guys um, but now Benedict, he's going to step out of the economics department. Oh, thank God. Finally. And he's going to complain God. about the political science department. Oh, why wouldn't he? Bit. Not even in a different <laughs> fucking subsection. He just transitions to No, it. no. And he does it actually while making it sound like he's not going to, right? Yeah. He actually says that a complete survey would take us into this department and that oh, department. Oh, really? But to he's do that, even half-ass his job again is a practical impossibility. What a fucking shock. Well, and then he says, well, I guess I'll talk about political science for a little bit. And so he talks about one of the textbooks used in the political science department. Again, he's just talking about one book, probably used in a freshman class, which is called A Grammar of American Politics, The Sorry, National no. Government. The infamous oh, A yes, Grammar the of infamous American Politics. A Grammar of American Politics. I tried to find a PDF file of this textbook so I could see what he might have a problem with, but it's one of those things like, it's just not out there. I think it, I don't know if it's because nobody cared to keep it alive. I did find like some reviews of it that were published in like political science journals around the time that the textbook came out. And people were just like, that's ah, a new updated version of this book that's been around for a long time. I like what they did in some spots. They've made the narrative more, uh, uh, more readable. They've made it so that it actually carries you through the book and blah, 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 blah. There was nobody except Buckley complaining about the shit he's complaining about here for this book. Just, just nobody complained about it. And funny enough, Benedict, Malcolm C. Moose, who was one of the writers of this textbook, is the guy who wrote Eisenhower's military-industrial complex speech. He was a speechwriter for Dwight Eisenhower, who mm. wrote the military-industrial complex speech. In which Eisenhower warned against developing a nation too reliant on the military-industrial yes! complex. Yeah. Yes, something you think Buckley would be in favor of if he wasn't also in favor of big gov- big monopolies and yeah. giant companies. I don't know. It's hard to see where he would come down on that. But he says, quote, and this is a quote he's taking from the book. And, and again, it's chopped up. It's got a bunch of stuff going on. It Quote, it is time to square off and take another look at our governmental system. And in that way, attempt to free ourselves from some of the generalizations, abstractions, and conventional fictions that so often obscure a clear view of the realities of American government. That's from the preface. And then he continues, quote, the student is enjoined to beware of the, quote, whole elaborate system of fictions which with which the realities of government have long been obscured how evil does that sound benedict very sounds very evil sounds very benedict evil. would you be surprised to learn that this book in 1950 was one of the first political science textbooks to have substantial coverage of the civil rights 
movement that was going on at the time in the United no. States. And perhaps I would actually, I would not be surprised to learn that at all. Perhaps that contributes in some small way to why Buckley's so angry about this maybe, commie maybe, textbook. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> he doesn't say it. He doesn't mention anything about civil rights in his complaints here. But we know where Buckley stood at the time. Mm-hmm. We know he was against it. And, uh, and for long afterwards. And I don't even think, based on what I read, that this textbook was particularly pro or against civil rights in one way or another. It just, just covered, covered it. The civil rights movement like it had a chapter about civil rights um and that was new that wasn't you know in 1950 there wasn't a ton of that out there and i think i read nope. something about it being cut out of the port of the version that went to schools in the south i think that was something i saw somewhere so that's the sort of stuff but among the things he complains about with this book is the effusive enthusiasm shown for the tennessee valley authority he has something against the TVA. I don't know what it is. Of course he does. Why wouldn't he? He just hates it. Sympathy extended to the British in their mild nationalization program. Heavy scare quotes there. He says that the book says that, quote, the Republican Party, as the spokesman for entrenched big business, is on the side of wealth. I mean, that's just true. And then, like, the Democratic Party is pronouncedly the party of the underdog. I mean, in this time, they were the more heavily union party. They were also, mm-hmm. as we've recognized, also heavily the party of segregation. So I think there's an argument to be made there that they weren't, in fact, the party of the underdog. They were the party of the white dog. <laughs> Pretty blue much. dog. Yes. Certainly. <laughs> Definitely the blue dog. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's very boring. The next thing he goes into is the Yale's American Studies program, which he complains about not being sufficiently about pushing capitalism. When it's really just like, a, you know, American music and reading and culture and blah, 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 and that sort of stuff. Because the guy who endowed this program thought that the best way, actually the, the quote from the guy is, a program based on the conviction that the best safeguards against totalitarian developments in our economy are an understanding of our cultural heritage and affirmative belief in the validity of our institutions of free enterprise and individual liberty. So they made a program that talked a lot about like American literature and art and stuff, and that's not good enough for Buckley for an American yeah. studies program because they're not. This is boring. Let's do the extracurricular stuff. Yes, the extracurricular stuff. <laughs> the extracurricular stuff is where he's trying too hard. It goes off the rails. It's really? where. <laughs> it's where he's really trying. Although there is one thing before we get to the extracurriculars, Benedict, um, and he's it's where he's talking about. How he reached out and he wrote, you know, he reached out to some people who he thought would be his allies in this effort. He reached out to some professors and he said, Mm. quote, I found that although there has been much moaning in recent years over the ascendancy of collectivism in the classroom, the professors who might have helped me chose instead to pass me on the other side of the road. They offered a variety of reasons for doing so. Most often they satisfied themselves with the explanation that this book was not the proper channel for criticism. That is correct. It remains to be asked, what do these professors consider the proper channels to be? Well, why didn't you ask it when they told you this wasn't the proper channel? Also, again, it's just more sign that everyone thought he was a dick and wanted nothing to do with him. Yep. Nobody wanted anything to do with Buckley. But we get Benedict to the next subsection, which is entitled Evidences of Collectivism in Extracurricular Life. And here he starts off saying, quote, Though a brief survey of those activities that lend themselves to student expression of ideas is relevant and significant, rigid generalizations about student opinion are impossible, as the great majority of Yale undergraduates do not take part in organizations of this kind. 
Then he begins with the Yale Daily News, which, of course, he mm. was the head of. <laughs> yep. Real uh, collectivist sentiment of the and Yale he Daily actually News. Says, he actually says that the Yale Daily News had hun- almost 100% reading audience and active participation through its communications column. No, sure. dude, you didn't get 100% readership. I'm sorry. I know you <laughs> wish you had that. Even at the best issue you ever published, you never had 100% readership. No. You had a bunch of guys who grabbed a copy from the dude handing them out on the quad and then threw it straight into the trash because they just didn't care. They were on their uh, way yeah, to go I play I would rugby. say that people had less things to do back in the day. That's so true. I, it wouldn't surprise me too much. But, but Benedict's counterpoint, it was 1950 and marijuana also existed then. Yeah, but also there must have been some like toilet paper shortages or something, like if nothing else. I'm just saying he didn't get near 100%. That's all I'm saying. And then he starts shitting on the chairman of the various, well, not so much shitting on as he says, quote, the chairman of the 1948 and 1949 boards of the news were roughly speaking non-committal neoconservatives. As chairman of the 1950 board, I was classified as a good number of things, the most charitable being conservative. And... Again, Benedict, the next two pages, it's just him barely, barely papering over the fact that everybody fucking hated him. Yeah. Everyone hated Buckley so much, and he doesn't want to admit it. Oh, but it's, it's interesting. So it, it's interesting that the chairman of the board were neocon, neocon, and then him. Uh-huh. It ha- hardly screams collectivism, does it? I, I mean, mean, everyone's a neocon compared to Willie F. Buckley, right? The fucking paleoconservative to yeah. end them all, right? Yeah. This is, uh, to, to be honest, this is earlier than I realized the term neocon was in circulation. Yeah, I don't think it had exactly the same connotation back then as it did mm. now. Because ne- as it's used now, it's sort of like coming off of, uh, you know, it comes from the British tradition of neoconservatism. Uh, I actually just read an article. There's a great article I'm that was just sure a- it does. talking I, about I, in The I, Nation I, the other day. I don't know if you read the same yeah. article that I'm thinking of. Um, but no, I didn't. I, I'm not sure it does. I, I think, I mean, you know, the, the first big ones were ex-Trotskyists. Um, so people like Norman Podhoretz and... Um, yeah. No, that's exactly like that. the people who, who I was I was bringing up. Yeah. Uh, people in that sort of school who sort of rebelled against their earlier leftism and and went, uh, you know, not all the way to the right, not not to... Because they were... I think the, the most notable figures were like Jewish people. So to go that far to the right, you know, go all the way to the right, you're talking going straight into white supremacy and shit. Well, it was, the, it, was, it, was to, it was to the right on something. So yes. they went quite quite right on things like the economy, but whereas they were still quite socially progressive-ish for mm-hmm. conservative um, and, and retained a lot of the same social attitudes, but the, the economic attitudes and broader political attitudes, you know. No. The, I'm a social liberal, but a fiscal conservative. Yeah, which is bullshit. Very much so. Um, yeah. But he does say next quote. We are, in a manner of speaking, roughly equivalent. Talking about a guy named Ellis, who was another chairman who he complains about. That is to say, if we should single out a dozen or more controversial figures or issues that serve generally to separate the conservative from the left-winger, a fairly clear line would divide Ellis and me. Where he sympathized with Truman, Ackerson, Hiss, Humphrey, and Bowles, I contemned them. Where I backed the McCarran Act, the Taft-Hartley Law, the Committee on Un-American Activities, the autonomy of private clubs. Benedict, that phrase only means the ability of clubs to discriminate. That's all Mm -hmm. that phrase means. Uh, And associations and restriction of government activity, he deplored them. 
on the issues of fair employment and fair educational practice laws, on the Brannan plan, and on the Labour government in England, we again parted company. So this mm-hmm. is just him complaining about the editor of the news that came after him. That's who Ellis is. He's the guy who yep. came and, and was the chairman in 1951. And then, Benedict, he ends the section with the greatest sentence I have ever seen. Not because we've never seen it before. Not because it's new or unique to us. But because it comes this early in chronological history. He says, quote, The conservatives, as a minority, are the new radicals. The mm. evidence is overwhelming. Okay, conservatism is the new punk rock. Conservatism is the new punk rock, baby. That's right. Billy Idol up there singing about how great Richard Nixon is and Reagan and the Sex Pistols praising Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, they had a listen. They had a song called "God Save the Queen," Kevin. (laughs) Isn't that? I think. um, Ah, oh fuck! It might be um um who's the Saturday Night Live guy who I love but I can't remember his name who did uh, stand up for drummers. Uh, ba 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 You know who I'm talking about? Portlandia. I've never seen it. I've literally never seen. You've it. never seen? Are you you're joking? No. I've Anyways, never seen any of those uh, he has a show um on uh, IFC where he and Bill. God damn it! I'm blanking on so many Bill names Hader. today. Bill Hader do um like faux documentaries called documentary now oh uh, yeah, yeah yeah you know I, who I, i'm talking I know, about i know well i know documentary now yeah yes documentary now so the guy who is not bill Hader, whose name i'm blanking on and i'm not going to take the time to look up in the middle of the show uh i think it was either on documentary now or it was on an episode of saturday night live where he did like a it was a whole skit where it was the sex pistols but they were really into margaret thatcher and he just had a song with maggie thatcher's all right Maggie Thatcher's all right. It's just like that. This wasn't worth the story. It was for me, Benedict. It was for me. Fred Armisen. Fred Armisen. Of course, that's who it is. Anyways, Benedict, we get to the next section. And I think the last, thank fuck. Nope, not the last. Almost the last. Entitled The Political Union. Um, And he just points out that it's it's a political union and the liberals make up the majority of it because nobody likes conservatives. Um... And also that there are 200 members, which, again, is not very many. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's just basically a debate club. The li- He also does that thing that conservatives do of implying that the only reason there are more people in the liberal party than there are on the conservative side is because um, people want to be popular. It's not yep. because anybody actually thinks about the ideas or agrees with any of them. It's just because they want popularity. He you says, might say it's collectivism versus individualism. <laughs> he says, quote, it attracts its members in part because of the non-committal and pleasant connotations of its title, as also because its sprawling membership is uncannily mobilized come election time. So, yeah, he's okay. just going back to that old thing again. Sure. Yeah, man, they're just more popular than you are and nobody agrees with you. So he points out a couple of debates that happened in the political union and the fact that, again, his conservative side usually lost, which is not surprising at all. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, you know, a debate that about a greater degree of socialism in the United States, where the House voted overwhelmingly for it. Great. That doesn't mean Marxism. It means you know the more nuanced connotation that we all have for that actual phrase. So he complains about that, and then Bennett, we get to finally the last section of the title of the the chapter, which is the National Students Association. Bennett, this is the only place where he gave me something to dig into a little bit outside of the book other than the Charles Lindblom thing. But, Ben, the National Students Association, which is a group he's going to complain about being this socialist, collectivist organization for all these students, they're all a bunch of commies. 
Um, well, Benedict, the National Students Association, until 1967, was underwritten by clandestine funding from the CIA. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that sounds right. It was a CIA front group. <laughs> that sounds right. That checks out. I believe that. In 1967, a uh, uh, magazine at the time, you remember magazines? That used to be a thing. Uh, yeah, Ramparts Magazine revealed that they had been getting a good amount of funding for their international program and some of their domestic activities from the CIA. Uh, in addition cool. to those international activities, that's not surprising that the CIA would try to do that as like an influence program. Uh, for example, they didn't have to pay for their headquarters in Washington, D.C. The mm. CIA was just, you know, here, here's a building. You know, set up in there. How's that? You don't have to pay any rent. And of course, they're like, yeah, we're good with that. We'll do that. So this socialist group that he's complaining about here. Yeah. CIA front, buddy. The CIA front. Did they just transition to being the actual NSA? <laughs> Actually, funny enough, um, later on in their history, I think it might have been in the 1980s, they merged with another group uh, that I don't recall the name of to become the USSPA. Uh, the, uh, the United States student something. I don't remember exactly what it is. I can't. Association, something yeah, so, something, blah, blah, blah. United States Students Association, USSA. Uh, so they uh, merged with another student organization to become like the one that still exists. Actually, they're still around. I didn't know what about association them. association to rule them all. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, he's complaining about that. He, he lists some of the things that they've supported, which all of it's like no surprise. Like the NSA yeah. supported the Merchant Marine Bill because it had a provision that would allocated ships for student travel to Europe. Okay, that's socialism. No, it's just in favor of the students. Could be. They called for repeal of uh, an immigration bill on the grounds that it was discriminatory against Catholics and Jews. He says that sure. no apparent connection with students. Um, you know, some students might have been Catholic or Jewish. <laughs> it opposed, um, you know, bills in states that uh, would ban hiring communist teachers. Obviously, he would complain about that. Advocated fair educational practices and tried to get the uh, federal aid to education bill, uh, which I think became FAFSA which is what we all use in the U.S. to get student aid. That's what he complained about. And then the last, actually, I lied. This is actually the last subsection, Bennett, entitled Miscellaneous. And uh, this is just where him saying, yeah, we have a young Republican club, but it's not as popular as the young Democrats or the young progressives. <laughs> it's basically yeah. all he has to say there. He even points out that there is, uh, there are some open communist clubs on campus, but he points out that they're not very popular and, most of them folded right after they were started. Yeah, I mean, th that's just, a, a you know, by definition of its own popularity, nobody's censoring them. Yeah. He also actually, the only other fun Sorry, thing... Sorry, your about, ideas aren't popular, bruv. Like, <laughs> he brought up the World Federalists. Benedict, sure. do you remember Glenn Beck bringing up World Federalists? No, who I looked because I stopped paying attention after an hour of the podcast. Had like a so. total membership of like 5,000 people across the world or whatever. I, do I don't remember, remember the that, exact yeah. number. You can... Go back and listen to that if you care to find out what I had researched. But yeah, he brought up the World Federalist. But Benedict, I will, as I always do, end this chapter by reading in its entirety the final paragraph, which is as was quote. An organization known as the Dixwell Group, which operates under the aegis of Dwight Hall and was referred to above in connection with religion at Yale, ma maintains activities which are dedicated to, quote, bettering interracial relations in scare quotes. <laughs> Oh, no. It becomes interested in politics only when legislative measures to curb discrimination of various sorts are under consideration. 
individualism is dying at Yale and without a okay. fight. That's how he immediately after talking about this Dixwell group, he says that individualism is a very funny name for a group. It by is the a way. very funny name, but it's also the desegregationist pro civil rights group. That after that, that's when he says individualism is dying at Yale. I don't think, and anyone who's been listening along with us all this way through, I don't think will be surprised at all. At that is when he decided to say that particular phrase. So Benedict. You're mad at me. Um, because we went, let's be honest, Benedict. This show has never been an hour. It's never going it, to be Yeah, an but hour. it should be. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm going to start hanging up on you after You people don't know how mad it makes or Benedict when we you, go over you have an hour to, for this you have, to assign, you have to assign the right amount of pages because this is too many pages for the shit that you do. Well, was there another way to break this piece of shit up? Yeah. And Benedict, we could have done I will it also point in, out. I will also point out, we're just having this fight on air for the listeners now, but I will also point out, you are the one who chose this fucking book. I did, yeah, but you, <laughs> you we don't have to do 30-page chunks. We could do 20-page chunks. Yes, but this book has been so painful. I know you would rather get it done no, in fewer you weeks keep saying that. than more That's weeks. not true. That's absolutely oh, not true. I would prefer to st- I would prefer to do it an hour Benedict, every week. Benedict, what? You keep complaining. I'm going to make you do the Andy Notebook. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> Anyways, dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC. Become a patron for as little as $2 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, and early releases of our episodes, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, AJ Brantley, Taro Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Balls Watterson, and George Soros. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. Now that's it for this week's show. Till next time, you want the law, I am the law. Goodbye. Goodbye. Club Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com. Well, this week we read the second half of chapter two. Let me do that again. Well, this week we read... God, that was awful. It's hard with well, Kevin, acting. this week, I would like to tell you what we have well, read. Well, Kevin, this week, we read the second half of chapter two. Didn't we? <laughs> okay, I'm going to actually do it now. <laughs> God, okay. I'm n- I know in my head about it. How do I talk? <laughs> this is all going in the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs>